0: I asked some friends of mine in a Bible study. I said, do you guys have any good news, bad news stories? The flood, I just selected a few. These are hilarious. Here's the first one. Yeah, Wayne, we got a good news, bad news story. I was walking in the door. Honey, I have good news. My first shift on the new job and I'm done early. The bad news is I'm home because we were all laid off. That's bad news. How about this one? Look at this one. Picked up my wife from the airport. We've been trying to have a baby for a few months. She was flying to see me while I worked out of state. While driving out of the airport, she dropped this on me. Wife, good news, I'm pregnant, and holds up sonogram photo. Me, yay, looks at the sonogram. Wait, what's that? That's the other one. <laughs> I had to pull over before I had a wreck. Twins were the best thing that ever happened to us, but it was shocking at the time. Now get this one. Backstory, I started a new business in another city about an hour away. Had to commute because the apartment complex wouldn't release the last six months of the lease, even if they kept my deposit. So I was visiting my parents on Memorial Day weekend when I get a call. Business partner is on the phone. He says, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? The bad news, I said. Well, your apartment burned down. The good? You're out of your lease. (laughs) So... Those are awesome, but I've got one that's even better because it's written by God. You see, in the spirit of a good news, bad news story, God shares some of each for us. Proverbs 25 through 29, God shares with us some really, really bad news and some incredibly awesome good news. Uh, It starts with the bad news. The bad news is um, that my life, you ready for this? My life shows my true character. Ouch. Ouch. That's the first thing you'll see in your notes, by the way. Open up the bulletin you got when you came in. Look inside your bulletin on the left-hand side. You'll see the headline, uh, My Life Shows My True Character. And, oh, man, that's bad news. Open your Bible to Proverbs 27. Uh, Let's dive into it. Proverbs is right after Psalms in your Bible. Go to Proverbs 27, and let's read verse 19. As water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. Now, the Hebrew word we translate heart is lev. Lev is a favorite term of Jewish writers. It means the immaterial aspects of humanity. Everything about the person that is not physical. So it can be translated conscience, character, mind, heart, etc. In this context, Lev almost certainly means thoughts. So with that in mind, in Lev, if you will, uh, look at what God is saying through Solomon. Look what he's saying. A A still pool of water gives a reflection, right? It gives a reflection. True. All right, now tell me this: Can that still pool of water add anything to the picture that is not in the world above? Can, can it? Can it add? Can it reflect anything that is not outside of the water itself? Yes or no? No, it cannot. So, if you're looking in a pool of water and you suddenly see a Martian, you better turn around because it means one is behind you. Right? It can't add to it. All right. So then follow this through, whatever comes up in my thoughts doesn't come from anywhere except me, right? That means that though Satan and the world around me may be evil, though they may say ugly things that stick in my mind, my horrible thoughts are my own fault, right? They come from me. This is why Jesus said to ritually pure religious people that the inside of the cup is what's dirty. Look here, Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup so the outside of it may also become clean. What a great image. Tell me, kids, would you drink out of that cup? Yes or no? Please say no. Please say no. All right. It's clean outside, right? Yeah, you would, that's true, yeah. In the same way as that cup, the inside of all of us is dirty. It is not anything outside of us that causes our bad news. Our heart, mind, live, shows our truly fallen character. By the way, quick side note here. This is why the regular cultural call, and this happens in every culture, we hear it a lot in ours, the regular cultural call to just follow your heart is a formula for disaster. Follow your heart. My heart is evil. Okay? Jeremiah puts it better than anyone ever will. Jeremiah says, The heart, the live of the human is deceitful above all else. What lunatic would tell someone to follow that? Oh, kids, just follow your heart. That's the most wicked advice you could give. Your heart is shot through with evil that would make a Disney villain blush. All right? Would, just tell me, would you follow Jafar, Maleficent, Syndrome, No, of course not. Kids, tell me this. How do things turn out when Scar becomes the Lion King? Good or bad? Oh, it's bad. It's very horrible. All right, so don't follow your heart. Train your heart. Let God cleanse your heart, the inside of your cup. How? Hang on. We'll get there in a minute. We'll get to how in a moment. First, let's cover the bad news that our bad hearts lead to bad actions. The most exhaustive statement about this is actually in the New Testament. Uh, look up here, Galatians chapter 5, Galatians five nineteen 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, And anything similar. And I know what you're saying to yourself. In in your favorite um, scar imitation, you're saying, well, thank goodness we're not like that, right? Alan Rickman, scar, we're not like that. Oh, scar, scar, you deceiving, deceived usurper. We are actually exactly like that. Our bad hearts lead to bad actions. And, And Proverbs 25 to 29, which is Hezekiah's collection of Solomon's wisdom 25 to 29 goes in depth into four particular evidences of our depravity. Okay, four particular things that shows we are just like that. We give in to evil, we're gluttons, we lose our temper, and we abandon family. Okay, quick note, just because I love you. This is about to get really, really convicting. So this is a perfect time to fake a stomach illness that came out of nowhere and just, <coughs> excuse me, I, and just, I don't blame you. You should have had to go through it all week like I did. This is a, this is a beating. Just a warning. Don't say I didn't warn you. All right. Uh, we'll come back to chapter 27. All right, we'll come back there. Put a marker there. But go back a uh, page or two to the west in your Bible to Proverbs 25. Go to Proverbs 25, and let's read twenty-five 26. We're going to read a few verses in a row, starting with verse 26. A righteous person who yields to the wicked... It's like a muddied spring or a polluted well. We give in, we yield to evil. How useful is a polluted well? It's useless. Thousands of people die of dysentery every time a major water supply is contaminated. You, you have probably died yourself of dysentery as a character on the Oregon Trail, right? <laughs> right? You, you drank water you shouldn't have. You have died of dysentery, right? Right? A water source that is polluted, think this through, a water source that is polluted is actually worse than no water at all. Do you know that? People, plants, animals, they they can usually survive waiting for rain or for a healthy watering hole, but it is unthinkably horrible when supposedly life-giving water brings death. So, righteous people, do you see the point? Christians, Christians made holy through faith in Jesus, you are indeed righteous. Hooray, that's true. You are springs, Jesus said, pouring out, bubbling out his living water until... We give way to wickedness, and then we're worse than no spring at all. A six-year-old believer in Christ, a friend of mine, she was singing Christmas carols while she was standing in line with her kindergarten class. This happened right here in North Texas. And as she was singing Christmas carols, the other kids were all singing too, standing in line. Her teacher pulled this tiny Christian aside and said, wah, 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 wah. Actually, what she said was, "Um, those songs can't be sung here, sweetheart. Those are too Christian. Those songs are only for church. You can't bring those to school. And this brilliant little girl thought for a moment, and she said something quite on target. She said, that's dumb. (laughs) And she said, and I'm quoting here, she said, I have to ask my daddy about that. And then the teacher said, oh, no, don't, don't talk to your parents about it. This is a conversation just for school. Now, I know you're all groaning with pain here, as you should, but just think about being this little six-year-old girl. If you were that young, wouldn't you give way before that kind of evil? I mean, I think I probably would have. I mean, this is an authority. This is somebody that you're supposed to respect, and you are, and they are utterly violating the law, common sense, and fairness. This person has power over you. I don't know that I wouldn't have given way before that evil, and yet this little girl did not bat an eye. She went straight home and told her parents right away, and she, not the folks, I I was a part of this, she demanded that they were going to put a stop to this. They called first Liberty Institute, they met with the constitutional attorney, and in very short order they received an apology. Further, and this is brilliant, the wonderful school district sent a reminder to all of their district staff reminding everyone students do not lose the First Amendment to the Constitution just because they walk onto a school campus. Now, the goal is not to seek trouble. The goal is not to be pugnacious. The goal is to stop being cowards who yield. Cowards who are, who are more pansies than little six-year-old girls. Cowards who change our messages or actions just because of wicked bullies in the world. Now, read the next verse, verse 27. It is not good to eat too much honey or to seek glory after glory. Add to that, if you would, Proverbs 27, verse 20. Sheol and Abaddon. Sheol is the Hebrew concept of the place of the dead. Abaddon is is hell. Uh, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and people's eyes are never satisfied. The obvious truth is we are gluttons. Like death and hell, we always want more. These, right here. These are the greatest store cookies ever produced. These are Trader Joe's, mini gingerbread men with white fudge icing. They are awesome. Absolutely incredible. I'd never had them before until a few years ago, four or five years ago. I was, uh, I was up here working late one night, and then suddenly I was startled out of typing by my stomach making an absolute racket. It was like a Winnie the Pooh episode. It was so loud. And I realized, you ever had done this? I realized I'd been working so hard, I hadn't eaten dinner, and then I realized I didn't even eat lunch either. And I didn't have time to finish what I was doing, but I wandered down here to the kitchen. And there was a life group that had had their Christmas party, and they had left uh, a bunch of food out for the church staff with a note saying, here you go, hope you guys enjoy this. By the way, I don't know if you know this, church staff are like the animals at a national park. We'll eat whatever people throw at us, uh, and you probably shouldn't feed us. But anyway... There was, this, there was this one box, an open box of these. I thought, oh, I've never had those, the gingerbread men. They, I, I, I don't know if they're any good, but hey, you'll at least make my stomach stop rumbling. So I took them and I went back to my office. When I came to, I'm not kidding. I don't know how much time had passed. When I came to, half of the box was gone. Now, listen, that's not gluttony. That is not gluttony. That is an understandable reaction to hunger and to food that is laced with some kind of addictive chemical, okay? <laughs> That's appropriate. The gluttony came when I set the box down finally, and I went back to, to writing, and then I stopped, and stomach's no longer rumbling, I stopped, and I opened the box and ate three more handfuls of the cookies. That, my friends, is gluttony. And it's not just about food. We're greedy. we're greedy about money, we're greedy about sex. Look at our text, we're greedy about glory, right? Sometimes when I post a social media note, I will, uh, I'll go back later and I will, um, I'll, look, I'll look and uh, pray for all those people who liked it. I'll, I'll, I'll pull up the list and I'll look at it and i use it. It's, it's a redemptive thing for me. I, I use media and I, I pray for every one of those people who took the time to like that, that post. But other times, I do, I do not pray. I intend to. I intend to as I click on it, but I realize as I'm looking through the likes that I'm just basking in glory after glory. I'm basking in my own narcissism, getting a tan, actually, from all the likes, right? Now, I know none of you can relate to that, but other people, other people than you, for them, this is a major source of gluttony. By the way, one other thing. Greed also drives a great deal of political division. Follow this. I don't know if you realize this, but it's not our own gluttony that divides us as much as it is our fear of others' appetite. Blind to my own rapacious gluttony, I am nonetheless, no matter how greedy I am, I am wildly aware of your appetite. Okay? I'm wildly aware of yours. So we end up with situations like this. You've got a bunch of people who are very concerned about the opposite party's greed for control, their their desire to expand their government reach over more and more of life. Meanwhile, on the opposite side, you've got these big government folks who are worried that those greedy libertarians are not going to do what is best for everybody because they're so selfish. Do you see? We're clued into the other person's greed and not our own. By the way... Just in case you wonder, I did not take that example from modern America, not at all. I took that from the conflict between Athens and Corinth 2,400 years ago. Mistrust of other people's gluttony has been causing political strife long, long before America was even an idea. The bad news is that our true character is shown by our thoughts. It's shown when we yield before evil. It's shown by our gluttony and when we lose our temper. That's the title atop the right side of our notes. We lose our temper. It's the point of the next verse, verse 28. A man who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. No ancient Hebrew city could control its commerce, safety, its immigration if the city wall was in disrepair. And anybody, get this now, anybody who would open the gates of the city unauthorized, anyone who would break down the wall was considered a traitor. So what's the text saying to us? That when we lose our cool, when we lose our cool, we have just committed treason against our own lives. One time when we were together on a project, our now-departed church elder, Dan Southern, uh, watched me lose my temper. And he confronted me about it later. When I defended the rightness of my position, Dan said this to me in response. It doesn't matter, Wayne, if you're in the right. When you lose control enough to show heated anger, you're letting the devil into the city. Not just you, but those you love are put at risk. Ouch. Now, there are times to be angry. Biblically, very clearly, there are times to be angry. There are righteous ways to express anger. But the lack of self-control we show in our frustration, please listen, parents. The lack of self-control in our frustration is traitorous. It is traitorous. Read it with me, everybody together. Proverbs 25, 28. A man who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. Now, the last part of the bad news about our souls is found back in Proverbs 27. So go back to 27, turn back to chapter 27, and let's read verse 8. Verse 8 of Proverbs 27. A man wandering from his home is like a bird wandering from its nest. We abandon family. When I was a child, there were a whole bunch of bird nests that were along the creek, uh, around our house, behind my house, and in the big cottonwood tree in our backyard. And my brother and I learned fairly early on that the sparrows and the mockingbirds are the worst parents in the avian world. They're they're just awful. Many, many times they abandon the nest before the chicks are ever able to care for themselves. In fact, a, a pretty typical tactic was, and this happened often, is the uh, the mom or dad bird would just knock all the chicks out of the nest before they could fly before anything. Usually, uh, they died from the fall, or one of the many predators in the creek got them. But on occasion, Bob or I would find a still-living Cheeping little chick, and we would pick them up, and we would take it back to our house, where we became we became pretty good at, uh, at nursing and feeding and eventually releasing healthy birdlings. And my parents never complained. They didn't complain about the mess. They didn't complain about the smell. They didn't even complain when the house was used for flight practice. Um, <laughs> and I, I, was, I was a kid. I was a little kid, but I was just old enough one time to realize that this was really nice of mom to... Uh, let us keep up with our non-pet project. And uh, and so I thanked her. I said, Mommy, thanks for letting us raise the birdies. And um, and she said something weird. I didn't get it. In fact, I didn't get it enough that it stuck in my head. She was looking out the window back at the creek, and she said, Son, I wish I could do more, not for the birds, but for all the children being abandoned by their parents these days. Again, I was a child. I didn't understand. Later, Later, I would learn that in the latter 20th century, that era, it was completely different from from the social norms that had come before it. Moral decay had eroded ethics. The sexual revolution had sparked a divorce boom. Uh, Welfare expansion had corroded family connections and had led to unwed birth spikes. I learned that it was, and sadly still is, a horrible crisis. Here are the latest statistics. You should hear these. This is from the U.S. Department of Health and uh, Urban Development, uh, Housing and Urban Development. Today, 39.8% of children born in America enter an unmarried home. 39.8% of children enter an unmarried home. Significant but unverifiable numbers of those kids see the remaining parent in and out of sexual relationships, which makes the child feel insecure and abandoned. Get this, about 30%, it's slightly above 30%, of those born into a married home will see their parents divorce. And those who suffer parental divorce is the saddest part of all. Those who suffer a parental divorce have a greater than 50% chance to endure it again. The bad news is that it's a culture, we have greatly abandoned the family. We're mockingbirds and sparrows. And it's not just something other people do. It's not just philanderers and bar hoppers who abandon their family. You and I do it as well. We're just, we're just more sneaky about it. You know, we just have more subtle ways to abandon the family. Like when we leave the dinner table, that best time to shape the family culture, to develop those people we're with, and we leave because we want to go watch our show alone in our room, right? Or our game alone. When we adults, uh, kids do this too, but adults are really bad about this, we will text our parents instead of calling them. And the reason is, deep down, this is horrible to confess, the reason is we don't want to give them our actual time. When we talk, and everybody I know does this, when we talk of my time or my money or my whatever, all the while knowing that those things belong to God, they belong to God who expects me to use everything He's given me for the good of the family, which includes me. I need to develop myself, yes, but I am to be a supporter and developer of these people He's put me with. When we do all these things and more, we walk away from the home. We abandon family. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. After all that depressive, horrible, true news, in your um, Mrs. Incredible voice, you're wondering, Bob, is there nothing that can be done? I mean, can't we overthrow the rule of our bad heart syndrome in our lives, Bob? It's a great question. Thank you so much for asking. The answer is yes. Yes, here's the good news. You ready for the good news? God guides us in self-control. God gives us the power to control our sinful selves. Now, I love the scene in The Incredibles where Edna Moulds grabs the piece of paper and rolls it up and slaps uh, Mrs. Incredible in the face and says, You are Elastigirl! Pull yourself together! But I'm very thankful that God doesn't do that to me. Because it doesn't work. Oh, don't get me wrong. God wants his people to stop crying over our sinful hearts. He wants us to remember who we really are in Jesus. God desires that we take action to fight this situation of our bad hearts. But just saying, pull yourself together, doesn't cut it. You pull all the pieces of a flawed heart together, it's still flawed. It is only through reliance upon God that we can find real self-control. Doing it transforms one's life. But it must, listen, it must be done God's way. Flip over to Proverbs 29. Last time I'm going to make you turn today. Go to Proverbs chapter 29 and let's learn about God's way of empowering us to control the evil human heart. First, self-control is, and this is really counterintuitive, self-control is learned through submission. We, We learn control by voluntarily surrendering it. Chapter 29, verse 1. One who becomes stiff-necked. Um, in, in the Bible, stiff-necked means uh, it's not just pride; it's somebody who is who is prideful and set, and he is not open to input. Okay, stiff-necked means I will not accept anything from anyone else. Okay, that's that's what stiff-necked means. Okay, so one who becomes stiff-necked after many reprimands will be shattered instantly, beyond recovery. We must learn to yield. We must learn to learn because the truth is we can't pull ourselves together. We need this new heart that only God's Spirit can provide more on that in a moment. And even those of us, even those of us who have renewed hearts through faith in Jesus, we need training. We need training and practices that make permanent. We've got to establish regular practices that give us input and conviction and reprimand. We've got to train ourselves to listen, not be stiff-necked toward input. How many of you served in the US military? Raise your hand. If you served in the military, keep your hand up really high, please. Raise your hand in the US military. Okay, keep your hand up if, keep your hand up if you emerge from that experience with more self-control, more discipline. Wow, every hand stayed up. Okay, thank you. Isn't that odd? You see, that seems strange to me because on the surface, military training appears to have very little to do with self-control. It's about being controlled by others, right? I mean, you're told everything. What to do, when to do it, how to do it, how you did it wrong. And yet, for some reason, military personnel emerge from that outside control with a great deal more inner control. The same is true of sports teams, by the way, and, and art and academic uh, competitors. The reason is clear in our text. Look at the text. When we put ourselves in a position to be beaten down with rebukes, it makes us stronger internally. When we bow up, pridefully nursing the pain of our wicked hearts, well, we actually become more fragile? When we refuse conviction and stiffen our necks to prove that we've got it all together, we, just, we merely make the eventual <laughs> breakdown worse. We shatter, Right? Taking correction provides us with with long-term success. Submission makes us stronger. And this is a very serious concern for parenting in the Western world. Listen, children who are raised as delicate, independent little snowflakes who cannot handle reproof, they actually get more fragile as life goes on, not less. That, that, That protection doesn't help them. That's why Hezekiah's men who were copying Solomon's wisdom added these verses. Look at verse 15. They copied this one. A rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a youth left to himself is a disgrace to his mother. Verse 17. Discipline your son. It will bring you peace of mind and give you delight. My all-time favorite uh, commentary on this is from the brilliant cartoonist Bill Amon. Look at his Foxtrot uh, cartoon. Jason goes up to his mom and says, Are you familiar with the adage, spare the rod, spoil the child? I am. Well, it seems to me that since you and dad have never once hit me with a rod, I should be a lot more spoiled than I am. You can correct this by buying me every video game I ask for. And I'd like my own computer with a 30-inch LCD monitor, and I think my allowance should be $100 a week. Maybe we've been saving the rod for the right moment. Okay, okay, $50 a week, all right? Unless you want your kid to be shattered, you must teach them submission now. They must, they must see and imitate your submission to God, how you submit to God even about the things you don't want to do. They must learn to yield to teachers and civic authorities and parents and et cetera. And, and, like the little girl we talked about earlier, they've got to know how to disobey authority when it commands violation of Scripture. And when that kid inevitably rebels, and they all do in some way or another, painful chastisement is necessary. Not abuse chastisement is necessary. I know this is hard. I know this is hard for a parent. I struggled with it too. It seems compassionate to soften the blow of all criticism, to stand in the way of your kid, to always say, how beautiful and perfect. you little did it now, perfect, perfect. Right? But deep down, if you do that, that means you hate that kid. I'm totally serious. If you know, as you do, that instantaneous shattering and disgrace are certain for a person who has not learned submissive self-control, then protecting someone from discipline is an act of malice. One more note on learning self-control through submission. You can't excuse lack of yielding to God because of the culture around you, whether it's good or bad. Look at the context around Proverbs 21. This is fascinating. Can we read verse 1, right? Uh, Proverbs 29, verse 1. Now look at the verse before it. When the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. Now look at the verse after it. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And right in the middle, a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. This is a type of writing or editing called an inclusio. Okay? You've got bookend statements that give context and highlight the central point. Notice it doesn't matter if everything around you is wicked. That's terrible, but it doesn't change the individual responsibility to learn through submission. We can learn from God even in the nastiest possible culture. And conversely, just because times are good, that doesn't excuse laziness in our growth. Good or bad surroundings don't change the need to learn self-control through submission. All God's people said, amen. The good news is that for the one who yields, God guides in self-control. Here's more good news, more good news. Self-control won't take the bait. You can actually You can actually not take the bait of sin. This is a big part of chapter 29. Let's read a bunch of verses, uh, starting with verse 3. A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but one who consorts with prostitutes destroys his wealth. Go down to verse 8. Mockers inflame a city, but the wise one turns away anger. Verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man holds it in check. And now, similar theme, verse 20. Do you see a man who speaks too soon? There's more hope for a fool than him. The learner, that is the person who who loves wisdom, doesn't act stupidly. He or she can overcome basic human tendencies. She doesn't take the bait. For example, a massive theme early in Proverbs is the wickedness of consorting with prostitutes. By the way, the reason Proverbs hates it so much is it destroys. Prostitution destroys not just the poor person treated as an object, but also the person who goes into them and sullies themselves and treats themselves as an object. However... Even though it's so bad, since the Garden of Eden, humans have been bombarded with this idea. The idea is that real freedom is found in giving way and giving vent to all your potential sexual desires. Whatever you desire, that must be good because your heart is good, right? In our day, Hollywood, this is weird. In our day, Hollywood even says that there's no way, it is impossible to control sexual impulses. That's That's what we're taught all the time. Hollywood's wrong. It is not only possible to redirect and control sexual desires, it is good to do so. Look at the text. It brings wisdom to you and joy to your family. Same thing's true of the impulse toward anger, this mocking ugliness that we see in human communication. The wise, the person who has learned to live skillfully, turns away anger. He doesn't give full vent to his wrath. And yes, this applies to watching sports. It does. Bill Cowher was a Super Bowl winning coach. He was on top of his profession when he just suddenly quit. Just suddenly quit. Coach Cower quit. In a fascinating interview with CBS, uh, Bill Cower explained why he walked away from the Pittsburgh Steelers, the team he coached. He said, "My whole family was together watching us, the Steelers, play on TV. The camera zoomed in on me at one point, and there was no mistaking the profanity coming out of my mouth or the murder in my eyes. Remember how I used to lock his jaw, just murder in his eyes. My aunts were shocked. My family was embarrassed. They know who I really am as a Christian, but I had lost self-control. Close quote. So Coach stepped away, and he chose to step away and relearn submission to get good at rejecting the temptation to just let loose like a drunken sailor. What about us? What do you need to step away from so you can stop taking the bait to mock and snipe and be angry? Some of us need to adjust friendships we have. Others, others probably need to change situations. Likely many need to shut down social media. What is it for you? And how many of us, look at verse 20. How many of us are tempted by the bait in verse 20 of speaking too soon? Raise your hand if you're a chronic interrupter. That was awesome. That was fantastic. Her hand went up before I was finished with the sentence, <laughs> which is just genius. Um Okay, hands down. Here's some good news. For you interrupters, here's some good news. The good news is some studies indicate that interrupters are often of above-average intelligence. But there's bad news as well. Almost all interrupters, and this is according to two different studies I read, almost all interrupters think they're more intelligent than anyone else in the conversation. And that explains why God says that fools have more hope. Because when I think I know it all, when I believe that what I have to say is more important than honoring someone else, I lack the submissive mindset needed for self-control. I'm worse than a fool. So when I find that I'm taking the bait, whether it's sexually or personally with anger, with interpersonally interrupting, I need to step away. Like Coach Cowher, I need to get back to more training on self-control. And that means that I engage with God's Holy Spirit. This is what we're leading up to. Because we wrap this up in your notes. Ultimately, self-control is empowered by God's Spirit. This is what I hinted at earlier. True self-control is not about the self. True self-control is about God. No human... Not the staunchest stoic of the ancient world. Not the Native American relative of mine who is determined to show no emotion. Not the greatest Jedi knight. No one can exercise genuine self-control. Every one of them always reveals in many ways that their hearts are corrupt. Listen, the bad news always comes out. It always comes out. No human can control it. Go back, go back to the polluted spring picture God used earlier. Tell me, just tell me this. Can that spring just will itself to be clean? Can, can it just feel the force and just push and expel all the poison through its own power? Yes or no? Can it do that? No, it cannot. Something has to be added or removed, chemically altered, purified. In the same way, we can only gain self-control through the radical indwelling of God's Spirit. Look, look here. Galatians chapter 5, the passage we read earlier, we read about the deeds of the flesh. Well, it goes on and says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is, if you know them, you can read it with me, love, joy, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you see that? This is what life is like for the person who allows God's spirit to lead. The works of the flesh that we read earlier, they are overcome by the good news of healthy fruit. And that fruit includes what, everybody? It's right there. What is it? Say it. Self-control. It's antithesis, the passage goes on, is conceit. Which prompted David Wade of our pulpit team to send me this brilliant note. Look at this. David wrote me and he said, Wayne, this message resonates with me because my pride, for as long as I can remember, has always been having it all together. And for many years, I was convinced that I did, in fact, have it all together. But thankfully, the Lord called me to Himself. And by some of these proverbs, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that there were many cracks in my facade. In myself, I could never have it together. God showed me the only way to keep from eventual shattering is to give up my pride, admit my total inability to do it myself, and walk by His power. All God's people said. Paul writes these Christians in Galatia, and he says that we are crucified in Jesus. We are dead to the penalty of our sin that fell on Him in our place. And we also can be freed from the practice of sin when we follow God the Spirit. Since the Spirit raises us to new life, we should also follow Him in that life. Which takes me to another great note I received this week. Um, Our former church missionary, Dan Bolin, is now retired. Uh, Dan uh, moved to be close to the grandson. He and Kay moved to Washington, D.C., very, very crowded inner part of Arlington, Virginia, Thankfully, Dan, who is a country boy, gets out in the country for walks just about every day. And he recently wrote the story I put in your notes, or at least most of it I put in your notes. Uh, Dan writes this. The forest trails of Arlington, Virginia, provide a delightful sanctuary from our densely populated urban surroundings. Most mornings, Kay and I walk, talk, and pray our way over miles of trails that follow streams and dissect parks, encountering countless squirrels, occasional deer, and a rare fox along the way. One morning, voices behind us broke the early morning stillness. As they gained on us, the conversation became more intriguing. Small step down, loose gravel, people ahead, stay left. As the joggers edged past, we exchanged hellos and noticed a small white strap held by both ladies. One jogger could see, the other was blind. Together, they ran the trail connected by that small white strap and an obvious commitment to one another. Now, Dan goes on. Isaiah records God's commitment to all of us who are on life's journey and need help seeing more clearly. Isaiah 42, I will lead the blind by ways they've not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. You may be walking an unfamiliar road at work, navigating relationships between family or friends, steering through financial or medical issues and cannot see a safe pathway ahead. Whatever your path, remember, stay close to the guide who is committed to travel with you every step of the way. Christian, do you want the good news of self-control in your life? Yes or no? Do you want the good news of self-control in your life? Do you? Then make every effort to follow God's Spirit. Every effort to follow God's Spirit. Let me just give you a few ways the Bible teaches us to do this. There there are many. I've just pulled out a few that I think may be the most germane to us. Be still. No noise. No noise. No background music, no work, no media. Just be still. Make time to be quiet before God. It's one of the things Scripture commands that we do very little. Listen to Scripture. Study. Look at Scripture. That's how the Spirit speaks to us is through His Word. Pray. Pray. Ask God. Think. Love God with all your mind. Think things through and practice self-awareness. Accept input. Seek input. These disciplines really help the Christian. They help the Christian gain self-control, not because of ourself, but because of God the Spirit. All God's people said. Now, one last thing. I know that brings a question to your mind. I'm sure it does. In your uh, Frozone accent, you're, you're, you're wondering, what about the non-Christian? Where is his super suit? He doesn't. Don't you love that? Where is my supersuit? I am the greatest good you will ever. That's awesome. Love that. The non-Christian doesn't have God's spirit, so what good is working on self-control to him? It's a great question. Thank you for asking. Listen, here's the point of all the bad news. Even for the non-Christian that you know, even for the one who's here studying with me that is not a believer in Christ, here's the, here's the good news and the bad news. It shows the need that you have for salvation beyond yourself. You see, when I try to practice self-control on my own and I inevitably fail, then I realize that I need something, someone beyond me. And that need is wonderfully met in Jesus, God the Son. That is the great good news. Let's respond to that good news. Pray with me, please. Lord, I pray for anybody studying with me that has never trusted Jesus, that you will, that you will draw them to you right now. Listen, folks, Jesus is, he is fully God the Son, but he came to this earth so that he could pay the penalty for your sin and mine. He died on the cross so that we could be removed from the penalty of sin if we trust him, if we believe on Jesus. And then he rose from the dead so that he could come back. There is another advent of Jesus, just as the Bible promises And he rose from the dead so that we could have the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why he left, so that we would have the power of the Spirit, so we could have real self-control. And he rose from the dead so that everyone who believes on him could have everlasting life. Trust him right now. Just tell God that you trust Jesus. You believe him as your Savior. Raise your hand if you just trusted Jesus. Everybody else is still praying. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Father, I pray for all these Christians here, for all of us, that we will. Lord, let me put it this way. I pray you convict our socks off that we are smitten by this, especially all of these people who have been Christians a long time, which is wonderful. But see, there's this problem, Lord. We, we start thinking that the reason life is going well, the reason things are doing well, is because of us. Because we, we've developed these disciplines, which are good, they're often biblical, and we think that it's because of our self-control. And we've forgotten, we've forgotten that there is no human self-control. It is only God-control. And I pray you will break us and bring us back to where we need to be, which is trusting you. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.